Amen. I was hoping they might go again. I was like, we don't even, I don't even have to preach today. It's all right. Neil, that'll, that'll take care of it. So super excited to be together with God's people today. Find, if you have a copy of God's Word, find a First John. Find the book of First John. And John here has been answering some big questions for us. But with big questions comes big answers. And before we dive in, I want us to think about, there was a, one of, a, a clever writer named G.K. Chesterton. He's a lay uh, theologian, uh, English writer, and he's known for his incredible wit. And there's a story about him, and I actually was trying to do research to find out if this actually happened. And there's websites about him that said, well, this sounds like something he would do, <laughs> but we're not totally sure if it happened. But there was a newspaper who wrote to Chesterton, and the newspaper asked him, G.K. Chesterton, you're this commentator on the world, you're very bright, you write all these books, what's wrong with the world? And his response, he wrote back and he said, dear sir, I am. And that was his response. <laughs> he said, what is wrong with the world? He said, I am. And friends, in one sense, he's right. We are all tempted to point outside of ourselves when we see the problems in the world, but we must look back at ourselves. Our sin is what is broken in the world. Because of our sin, uh, all of creation has been cursed, but sin has also impacted us. It defines us in our nature. So when the Bible says we are sinners, that's a statement of, of our nature. But it also defines what we do in our actions. We are sinners who sin. It's infected us both from the perspective of nature and nurture. But I fear the church as a whole spends a ton of time talking about sin, but not really helping folks address their sin. And so as we come to 1 John today, John answers a very important unasked question, what do I do when I sin? What do I do when I blow it, when I've messed it up, when I just think I, when I just don't think I can go on? And look with me at 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 and we'll read together to chapter 2 verse 6. This is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps the word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which 
he walked. This is the word of God. And 1 John gives us so much correction here because there are two extremes people choose when they blow it. First, some people choose the extreme of despair. They wallow in self-pity and depression and they say things like, well, if I could blow it like this, there must be no hope for me. But others swing the other way. They see a habit of sin in themselves and others and they know the potential consequences, yet they minimize it. They They say things like, well, Everybody sins, so it must not be a big deal, right? So, and and, and you have both of these perspectives, and neither one of them lead to freedom and life. Neither one demonstrate what God desires for us when we fail. And it's fortunate, it's good news, that God has not left us to pick up the pieces after our sin. He's not left us on our own, but he's given us his word to help us know how, she, how we should respond and what we should do when we sin. And he starts simply and practically. He says, first, when you sin, after you sin, you must first recognize your sin. You got to start simple. You got to recognize your sin. That's where John begins, actually, when you look in chapter 1, verse 5. Look where he begins. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And out of this, he actually gives us a really helpful definition of sin. He tells us this, that sin is any action, attraction, or attitude that is opposed to God and his word. Any action, affection, or attitude that is opposed to God and his word. Anything we do, action, affection, anything we love, or attitude, perspectives that we have that are opposed to God and his word. This actually is what verse 6 is trying to tell us. It's trying to tell us that just as light and darkness can have no relationship together, neither can God and sin, that they're opposed to one another, that sin separates us from God. It's a barrier, and it harms our relationship, our fellowship, our communion with him. Sin means we are walking in darkness. Here he has in view both darkness in a moral and a spiritual sense, that when we sin, we commit wrongdoing, but we also end up walking without God's direction and without God's blessing. He even says sin is opposed to the truth. He who walks in sin walks in opposition to the truth and in line with the lie. And in order to do anything productive with your sin and move forward with it, you must recognize it. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, he says the same thing. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, he says this, the worst thing you can do with your sin is pretend it isn't there or that it didn't happen. Hidden sin is the most deadly form of sin. And we all have seen this. We've all seen this in our life with a person. Maybe they're a a very high-profile person who blows it in a public way, and people go, well, I just had no idea. Well, maybe there was something hidden going on before that public sin ever happened. Hidden sin is the most deadly form of sin. And while all of us do sin, it's a universal experience. When we blow it, we must respond by recognizing our sin. 
But recognition on its own doesn't bring change. We all know this, right? There's all kinds of problems in the world, and we can recognize the problem, but that doesn't always fix the problem. Recognizing doesn't always address it. So we move second from recognition of our sin. He says we must second repent of your sin. Not simply recognition. He moves toward repentance. And now, Repentance is really one of those churchy words we don't give a lot of definition to, right? It's one of those, sometimes we do this, we give it, we give it this abstract definition that makes it unclear what we exactly need to do. Repentance some, we, some can be defined as turning from sin, that's good, but still a little un, unclear. The good news is that 1 John here actually gives us a helpful guide to what repentance looks like. And he tells us straight up first that repentance begins when we confess our sin. We confess your sin. Look at verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance begins with confession. It's not simply a recognizing it in your head and kind of keeping it to yourself, but actually speaking, saying, I have done wrong. I have sinned. And the emphasis of the text is on confession, yes, to God, but also to one another. Recall last week we saw in verse 3 where it talks about how our fellowship is with one another and with the Father and with the Son. Verse 7 speaks about how our fellowship is with God and with one another. The whole emphasis is that your fellowship with God and your relationship with others are closely connected. And so when we sin, we confess to God. We look to his mercy, and he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of our sins. But we may need to go further than that. Because sin doesn't simply hurt your relationship with God. It hurts your relationships with others, too. If we have sinned against someone, we confess to them and ask for their forgiveness. If, friends, we are deep in the tangles of sin, we need a small group of people to come around us and pray and support us. And if we never open our mouth, we'll never be able to have that prayer support and that help around us. If we sin in a clear and public way, the Bible even says the public witness of the church may be required to make sure we see how serious our sin is. Some of us are still living in slavery to sin, walking in darkness, and rejecting the fullness God has for us because we're simply too prideful to go to someone and admit our fault or to let our sin open in the light of community. Let me say something. So many people walk into church and they think, man, everybody here is perfect. No, no, no. There's not anybody that's ever walked through that door that hasn't been a sinner. Hope you know today by coming here, you're letting the world know that you don't have it all together. Welcome. (laughs) You're in good company, right? We need to have the light of community because hidden sin can't be defeated. But sin brought into the light is sin that is emptied of its power. But we must recognize, church, that if people are going to begin to confess their sins and step into the light, we need to ask, what kind of church are we going to be when they do that? What's our first reaction when someone confesses dark sin 
into their, into your, that's in their life to you. Or maybe they just confess some weird stuff. I know maybe other people don't see this, but as a pastor, some people come to me and ask if, if strange things are a sin. And I'm like, no, putting peanut butter on your bologna sandwich is not a sin. It's just a little odd, right? It's just a little bit different, right? But do we, when people share things with us, do we shame them back into the darkness? Or do we carry them forward into glorious gospel light? Here's the thing, it's so often, we, we don't really think a lot in our particular sort of church tradition about confession. That's something, we often hear confession, we think about the Catholics with the priest behind the door sharing their sins with the priest. And in one sense, that there is some biblical merit to confessing your sins to someone, right? The problem is, is they think it's just one man they confess it to, whereas the Bible says, if you're in Jesus, we're all priests, They can get into the confessional and they can share their sins with any of us and we can all offer words of forgiveness and gospel hope because it's not in us, it's in him. And then we need to recognize repentance here. That's that's often where people stop. Repentance isn't simply confessing and going, man, I really messed up. I'm gonna go do it again this weekend. No, 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 no. Repentance isn't simply admitting remorse or action. Repentance then moves us from confessing our sin to second, to walk in a new direction. To turn. That's what repentance means, to turn from the way that we're going and to walk in a new direction. Look in chapter 1, verse 7. Rather than walk in darkness, we're told, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Walk in a new direction. True repentance brings change and desires to bring change, even if it may be difficult. It may mean putting steps in place to keep access to that sin at bay. So many people will come and they might repent of, man, I'm really struggling with looking at things on the internet. I know I'm not supposed to. And they'll come, they'll feel sorry about it, and they'll go right back to the house with an open internet where they have access to anything they might want to see. Often, simple willpower isn't going to get you to freedom, at least not right away. You're going to need to put steps in place. Maybe you have to put blockers on your device. Maybe you need a community of guys if you're a guy or or girl or other women if you're a, a girl that you can confess these things to and can hold you accountable. Not in a spirit of shame, but in a spirit of we want to lock arms together to pursue freedom from sin. Repentance is often very hard. And Paul actually illustrates true repentance for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He really puts flesh on this for us in a way that I I just love. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. Notice the contrast in verse 10. He says, godly grief produces repentance without regret, but he also says there's a sort of sorriness 
of sin that actually produces your death. You can feel bad about your sin and still die in your sin because you actually don't feel bad enough about it to do anything about it. Or you're just upset you got caught and that you're in trouble now that you actually sinned against God. And then he begins to describe for us what true godly grief and true repentance looks like in verse 11. And he talks about an earnestness, a genuine effort to pursue God, an eagerness to do something about it, an indignation, an anger toward our sin even, a zeal, and even a sort of punishment over it. And this leads us to walk in a new direction. And this is why repentance isn't something you can do totally on your own. In fact, the Bible says that we need the supernatural work of God in us through his word, through prayer, and through community. This isn't something that you just wake up one day and in and of yourself, in your own willpower, go, I think I'm going to fully repent of this today. No, 2 Timothy 2.25 reminds us of this, that it's God who grants repentance leading to a knowledge of of the truth. We must recognize our sin. You can't, re- you can't fix something you don't recognize. You need to repent of it, confess it to others, confess it to God, and walk in a new direction. But friends, this is where a lot of people stop. And John actually keeps going. And so should we. We need to keep going because there is such an important step. And third, we must remember the forgiveness of sin. So many people just, it's, it's a constant thing of going, confessing, trying to turn, trying to do better, doing all these things, but there's no forgiveness and grace and life in it. But hear me, the only sin you can ever defeat is a forgiven sin. Until you recognize your sin has been forgiven, you will never do and be able to conquer it and walk in freedom. And recognizing what Jesus has done for you is key to God doing his work in you. John continues into chapter 2, and remember that the chapter and verse numbers were sort of added later for our reference. So John keeps talking after he finishes in chapter 1. And here's what he says, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He says, I write all these things to you so that you would not sin, but walk in fullness of life. And he turns and reminds us, of the gospel. He turns and reminds us that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And he points toward three aspects of the gospel in particular, and I actually want us to work backwards through these two verses. Start at the end in chapter, in, in verse 2, where he tells us that Jesus is our propitiation. There's a big church word for you, but it's what he says there in verse 2. That Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's an incredible word, that word propitiation, that means a payment of debt, or a payment of debt. It is closely associated with the word atonement, which is another one of those churchy words. But let me show you something 
about the word atonement that I think is so helpful. The word atonement really just literally means at one meant. To be put at one, at peace with God, to be brought together what has been torn apart by sin, that when Jesus died our debt, died our death and paid the debt for our sins, we're able to be at peace at one now with God because he's paid the debt atonement. We can be at one with God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When he died, he satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. He died for us and instead of us. He's the propitiation for our sins, but not just for the sins of the people in this room, the sins of the whole world. Not simply the churches John is writing to, but friends, it's the hope for your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, and the nation's. There's no other place where forgiveness of sin is found. And we need to be reminded of this, that Jesus has paid it all for our sins, and therefore all to him we owe. He reminds us second, as he's reminding us of our forgiveness of sin, Jesus is our propitiation, but second, Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. In uh, the end of verse 1, He calls Jesus Christ the righteous. And he reminds us that Jesus can be our savior because he isn't a sinner. He died in our place. And he died in the place of sinners, though he never sinned. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus died and we respond in faith, a great exchange takes place. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is so important. If you ever wanted to understand what the heart of Christianity is about, look at this. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for us, for our sake, the Father sent the sinless Savior into the world to be made to punish, to, 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 be, to die as if he were a sinner, so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin placed on Christ, the sinless record of Jesus imputed to us, and we are treated as if we are righteous, even though we are not. We're declared to be righteous based on Christ's work, and this is why we can be adopted as his son or daughter. He looks at us and sees the perfect sinless record of Jesus. He is our righteousness, Imagine having your report card switched out with the, trip, with the all A's perfect student in the class. That's what happens when we place our faith in Jesus. Our record is put on him and he faces the punishment for it. And we receive all the benefits and the, and the help and the adoption into God's family because of his righteousness. And then we're reminded third that Jesus is our advocate. That as we're fighting sin, we're reminded that Jesus died for us, propitiation, he died our death, and that he was righteous and we're given that perfect righteousness. But he doesn't stop there. He says, Jesus is our advocate. Because friends, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead He ascended into heaven, and he stands in heaven today as an advocate. Think of him as the best defense attorney in the world. 
and he's pleading his work on our behalf. The word advocate can be translated as a comforter or as a friend. He stands and declares, even when we blow it, that that one is mine and that I died for him or her and I've forgiven them and I brought them into my family. He is our advocate before the Father, a living reminder and a living hope and eternal security of our assurance before God. Jesus ascended into heaven, and we often stop there, but you know, in heaven today, he stands as an advocate and as a high priest, praying for all those whom he died for and who placed their faith in him and securing our hope. And friends, this is what you need to be reminded of when you sin. We recognize it, we we confess it, we turn from it, and then we're reminded of the goodness and kindness and mercy of God. This is why we come together on at, at church and basically hear the same message every week. You're like, man, do you have anything else to say but that Jesus died and rose again? No, I really don't have anything else to say. We're just all prone to forget. See the gospel as our hope, the promises of God, for it's God's great promises that lead us to live the life of holiness God desires from us. Look at 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Look at this. For since we have these promises, all of 2 Corinthians 6 is a list of promises. For since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Do you see it? Once we see the beauty of grace and the incredible work of the gospel, it should lead us to walk in a different way. It should lead us to do something different. And this is actually where John finishes out his argument. We recognize our sin. We repent of our sin by confessing it and seeking to walk in a new direction to the best of our ability. We remember the forgiveness of our sin. And finally, fourth, we return to walking with God. We return to walking with God. And the rest of this section is here to show us what walking with God looks like. It puts flesh on the whole thing. There's still so many people that when they blow it, they can even get to the point of going, I know Jesus died for it, but they kind of are like, I'm still going to take a couple days off of this pursuing God thing. It's like, no, 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 no. We wash our face, we pick ourselves up, and we continue forward. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, being I know God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And here, John reminds us of two important things about walking with God. He says, first, that knowing God means keeping his word. That to know God means to keep his word. John isn't playing around here. If we claim to know God, yet never do what he says, he says, you are lying and the truth is not in you. That we show that we know him by obeying his word. And these are both key themes in John's letter. The word for knowing appears some 40 times in these five chapters, and the word keeping appears some 10 times in these chapters. We show that we know and love God by how we live and how we love others. 
And notice that all of it's defined not by what's popular, but by his commandments. That obedience is defined by the word of God. Not by what the culture may say is popular. Not even by what the preacher might say. So many times you'll be in churches where the preacher will make rules for other people to follow. And you'll be like, chapter and verse, right? That God defines that. That people with PhDs may say certain things are true or right. And friends, we need to be careful that we don't define what's true or right by how we feel. Because friends, our hearts are truly deceptive. But that the word of God defines Christian faithfulness. And that's why in order to know God, we need to know his word. And we're so tempted in our culture today, we've distorted things to believe that, well, God would never ask me to do something that I didn't already want to do or feel I should do or desire to do. And let me just break that bubble. God's going to often ask you to do something that's not the easy way out. That's not what the rest of the culture is telling you to do. He's going to often call you to go against the flow in a number of ways. And whenever we think that our feelings or our desires define what is true, we put ourselves in the place of God. But true faith imperfectly but truly seeks to keep God's word. And when we blow it, we pick ourselves back up off the floor and we continue forward in service to our king. You may fall a hundred times, but, God, but John says at least if you're going to fall, at least fall forward. If you're going to fall a hundred times, at least make some progress while you're falling forward. Do not let your sin define you or keep you in the mud. Continue to know God. Continue to seek to obey his word no matter what you might have done or what might be your story before then. And then, he says, in all of this, God is working in us. This is the second reality, that abiding in God means being perfected by God. He says, to to kind of put a bow on this, that as we abide in God, we're actually being perfected by God. He speaks here of the of the love of God being perfected in us. And whoever says we abide in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus, or John uses one of Jesus' favorite pictures of communion with him. And he speaks of abiding in God as vines abide in the branches. So we must remain or stay connected to God. What you attach yourself to, you become more like. The root becomes like the one it's rooted in. And so if we're rooted in Jesus, we walk more like Jesus. If we build our life on the word, on prayer, and on community, if we abide in Jesus, we become more like Jesus. And this is so helpful. This is a helpful warning to us. What we abide in, we will assimilate to. What you're going to connect to, you'll change into. What you fill your life with, you will become what we must be mindful of what we are abiding. If we're constantly abiding in the news headlines, friends, we're in trouble. If we're constantly abiding in TikTok, we're in all sorts of trouble, aren't we? If we're abiding in constant political commentary, friends, no wonder we're so angry out there in the world. We need to abide in Jesus and in his truth. And And it becomes evident 
by how we walk and who we look more like. Do we look more like the media? Do we look more like the world? Do we look more like what we see on social media, or do we look more like Jesus? And on the journey to look more like Jesus, let me assure you, you are going to blow it. You might even blow it before lunch today. You're going to sin. You're going to fail. All of us are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, but we're also God's fixer-uppers. He's not quite done with any of us yet because we're still here. And the good news is that God hasn't left you in your sin. He hasn't left you if you've blown it today or this week or maybe in a massive way in your life. He's given you a way to respond when you sin. To continue abiding in Jesus. To not let the accusations of the enemy say that you've gone too far or that you've outsinned the love of God. To continue pursuing and looking to God as your only hope and to abide in him and he will transform you. He has an open ear to hear you recognize your sin and repent. He's displayed mercy in providing a way for your sin to be forgiven. You need to remember the gospel. And he's given us all the opportunity of a new chance, empowered by his spirit and directed by his word. Let me close a sermon answering a question with a question. What will you do with your sin? There are really only two options. Either you can pay for it and die for your sins, or another can. You can answer for them, or you can have an advocate on your behalf. The answer to your sin isn't your own good works. It isn't empty religious ceremonies. The answer to your sin isn't trying to dig deep and find yourself and to awaken your truth and follow your heart because the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. It's what got you in this situation to begin with. What will you do with your sin? The answer to your sin is Jesus. To step forward into the light of community. To stop trusting in your own righteousness and to look instead to Jesus' righteousness. To stop pretending that we have it all together and to come to the place that is the hospital of the broken, the needy, and the screw-ups. To find your place among the people of God. Some today need to take a very first step by recognizing their sin, repenting and receiving the forgiveness of sin that's found by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Others need, who are followers of Christ need to step out of the darkness and into the light. They need to confess their sins in a small group to others they trust and know and who pray for them because sin in the darkness only grows in its power. And others need to take a step forward to join with a community of faith who they can do war with. Remember, when the antelope separates from the pack, that's when the, pre- the lion is truly its enemy. But when it stays with a pack, friends, that's when it's in its strength. Whatever response you need to do in the next few moments, there is time to do business with God, to step out of the darkness of sin and into the glorious light of the gospel. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father God, as we prepare to respond to your word, Lord, we ask right now that your spirit would convict us of our sin. The Bible says that your spirit does. It convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. So we ask 
in these moments that your sin would do that. We ask right now that if there's somebody who's never taken the step forward to know you and to place their faith in you, that they would do that in these next moments. We ask that there are others that are just walking in darkness. They'll walk forward into the lights and make commitments to confess their sin and to walk in a new direction, empowered by your gospel and by your spirit. And Lord, make us into a family where we can receive the broken and the needy and those walking in darkness and send them toward the light. Whatever response they need to make, may they come forward. May they pray with me or pray here uh, at, the, at the steps, at the altar. And Lord, we ask that you be honored in this response time. And we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. have been shaken when I'm left standing in the dark and all I feel is my heart breaking you still reign and you're still God and when it feels all hope is So
together in the light because he is the light right and we walk together in those rays together just a couple things before we close our service first if you need to make a next step and you didn't get a chance to talk today we have uh, connect cards at the back table you can leave in the plate as you leave fill out we'd love to connect with you you can also fill that out online you also can leave uh, your tithe and your offering if you want to support this ministry and the work we continue to do here there'll be baskets at the back as well as there's also uh, a giving link online if that's uh, easier for you as well but thankful to be together and thankful that the lord has given us a mission now to go because we're going to encounter people everywhere who've sinned and who've blown it but this isn't ever a dismissal this is being sent now with the message of the gospel and we're sent out with this benediction from second thessalonians chapter 2 may our lord jesus christ himself and god our father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word amen